Good morning. The title of this morning's message, I hope it cracks you up a little bit. <laughs> Count it all joy? Seriously? <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you primarily about faith, not joy. So why does the name of this message specifically point to joy? Because joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit which is provided by grace, but it's received by faith. When we take hold by faith of almost anything, when we know that we know that we know that we know and we can't be talked out of it, there is joy. <laughs> you are happy <laughs> when we use our faith, when we appropriate those promises and we know that we can't be talked out of them, joy comes. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The truth is we can't count it all joy in the midst of hardship and persecution, particularly apart from faith in the finished works of Jesus. The phrase count it all joy is found in the book of James. And before we look into that book, I want to give you some background. This book of James was written specifically with a mixed Jewish audience in mind, saved Jews and unsaved Jews. He was writing to Jews. He's also writing to believers. <laughs> so we can't go, well, that book's not for me. <laughs> He's also writing to believers. <laughs> the book of James is believed to be the first book written in the New Testament. This is always good to remember because that means James didn't have any other New Testament writings to consult. Scholars believe that he probably wrote this book shortly after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the church was still a baby. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff she didn't understand. So that's one of the reasons James' book is very practical, because he's talking to babies. <laughs> also, one of the things I find interesting about James is that some scholars believe that he didn't believe on Jesus, his biological half-brother, as the Messiah or as the Savior until after Jesus was risen from the dead. And this might be one of the reasons we don't see James using any quotes from Jesus's ministry. In fact, you don't hear him talk a lot about Jesus in particular, but he understood. He understood that he had a new identity. James does explicitly identify himself as a bondservant or a slave of both God and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah. One of the things I think opened my eyes was this realization that the man who wrote this book grew up with Jesus. <laughs> and he never knew his true identity. Can you imagine the day Jesus comes walking home from being risen from the dead? <laughs> and you go, Wow, I got that wrong. <laughs> this was his big brother. Scholars think that James was the firstborn after Jesus. So he was always in the light of Jesus, being measured, because they're Jewish. <laughs> you ain't never going to win <laughs> comparing yourself to Jesus all the time. That might be one of the reasons he was skeptical about his identity. But what I think is interesting is that in realizing who Jesus was, James had a better understanding of who he was. You see, he doesn't tell them, hey, I'm Jesus's brother. You got to listen to me. I grew up with the guy. Nope, never says that. If anybody knew Jesus after the flesh, it would have to be James. <laughs> but he knew him in a different way. He knew him in a better way. And recognizing Jesus' identity, he received his own identity. He wasn't just Jesus' little brother. He was a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how he says it in James chapter 1, verse 1. I have it for you in two verses, and I'll explain why <laughs> after we read them. I used Young's literal translation because this is the way it was actually written. What translators do is they try to make what was written fit into English in such a way that we understand it better. That's the whole idea, because we don't speak Greek. <laughs> so they rearrange the English, and the English is one of the hardest languages in the world. So it's no wonder sometimes things aren't as crisp as they are in the Young's Literal. The Young's Literal says this, James, he's identifying himself of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
a servant to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. Hail. And then in King James, it says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. Greetings. I like the Young's literal translation better because I think the Young's literal version better communicates the equality of God and Jesus. In the King James, it can kind of sound like Jesus is secondary. I am a servant of God, and oh yeah, <laughs> and of my big brother too. <laughs> but when the, the way he actually wrote it, he said, James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see an equality. He's not making one less than, whereas in the King James, it kind of insinuates that maybe it's a second place to God, <laughs> whereas the way he wrote it actually puts Jesus equivalent with God. That's important because that was the revelation that he got, that his brother, the whole time he was growing up, was God in the flesh. Also, the word translated servant is actually the Greek word for a bond slave. Now, in English, we wouldn't know the difference between a servant and a bond slave. The term servant at that particular time would have been equivalent to the word employee. You would say, oh, my servant, they're hired, I pay them. Even if it's just room and board, it's a volunteer position and they can leave at any time. That's not what the word bond slave meant. The term bond slave referred to someone who was purchased and permanently owned by a master. So James recognized that Jesus was actually both God and man at the same time, and that James himself had been purchased out of the slave market of sin by a literal redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Nobody understood kinsman redeemer quite like <laughs> Mary and James and the rest of the family. A kinsman redeemer had to be a relative in order to buy you out of your debt. And that's exactly what he realized Jesus had done for him. That's just mind-blowing. <laughs> But when James realized his half-brother's true identity, it is then when he got his own identity. And it's true for us. When we see Jesus the way he really is, we get our identity from him and from our Father. The church has a lot of bad pictures of dad, <laughs> bad pictures of our big brother. They think big brother and dad are both mad at us most of the time because we're never quite up to snuff. We're never quite perfect long enough, which is not a true picture of who God is. That matters because we do take our identity from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark was talking earlier about how someone mentioned, you call God Daddy. Some people are extremely offended by that because God is God, and if you call him Daddy, you're not giving him the appropriate respect. Yes, God is God. I call him God. When I'm up close and personal, he's Father. He's Papa God. You see, that's a different picture. <laughs> we have wrong pictures of our Father and our Jesus, and what that does is it creates wrong pictures in us. We get the wrong idea about who and what we are. So, after James identifies himself and his audience, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. And it is right here in this point in the letter that I think his audience probably said what we say. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously? You want me to count it all joy? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Do you know what we've had to go through, James? We've been run out of our homes. This is what happened to the early church. We've had to leave perfectly good jobs. Our families have been torn apart. We don't get to see our friends and relatives anymore. And we've been in danger of even losing our lives. There's persecution to the point of burning down our businesses and attacking our leaders and our protectors and our governors. James, are you out of your mind? Count it all joy? Seriously? <laughs> this letter was written in AD 45-ish. But doesn't it sound like the year 2020? Kenosha in particular? Yes, it does. It sounds like what we are seeing happening in this country and in particularly this city right now. The truth is persecution and hardship are a part of life on planet Earth, regardless of the year. 
<laughs> and so as believers, we need to know how to count it all joy. So what exactly does it mean, count it all joy? Do we just force a smile and pretend everything is fine? Is that what he's talking about? <laughs> no. Let's look at what the Vines Greek Dictionary and the Strong's Concordance says about the word count. The Vines Greek Dictionary says it means primarily to lead the way, hence to lead before the mind to account. And account means to think or suppose. The Strong's says this, to lead, that is to command with official authority. Figuratively, it can be used to deem, to consider, to be chief, to account, to count, esteem, govern, judge, have rule over, suppose, and think. Those are all the ways that this word can be translated. But primarily, the picture and the idea that this word is supposed to convey to the reader is that of leading and commanding our thoughts using our official authority as a believer. The truth is, we either lead our thoughts or our thoughts will lead us. We have to tell our brains what is true according to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Or our brains will tell us that what we see and feel and hear is what is actually true. James doesn't know it, but this is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It says this, For to be carnally minded, that means natural, of the five senses, <laughs> Natural thoughts or carnal thoughts are natural thoughts. They're not necessarily naughty thoughts. <laughs> naughty thoughts are carnal, but not all carnal thoughts are naughty. <laughs> I make up my grocery list. That's natural thinking. I need this, I need this, I need this. But then I take it one step farther and it becomes spiritual. Lord, what am I forgetting? <laughs> okay, yes, we have natural thoughts, but we can always bring the supernatural in just that fast. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And besides, then you don't have to go to the store twice. <laughs> to be carnally minded is to let our brain, our body, and our emotions be in charge. Our physical brain only cares about what we see, hear, smell, and taste. Our brains will always choose to believe what the natural world communicates, which is always based in fear. The Holy Spirit will always lead us through our thoughts, through the thoughts he brings into our mind, into all truth. And truth is always love-based and always produces life and peace. Fear-based thoughts are never from God. I know a lot of people say, I don't hear God. No, you just don't recognize that you hear God. <laughs> you hear God. You're just not recognizing that he's talking to you. Michelle and I were talking before church. She went to get in her car today, and she's going to pick up Patty and PJ. And this thought comes, put your umbrella in the trunk. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> she could have said no. Eh, I'll do it later. Eh, no one's going to sit there anyway. Eh. She goes to pick up Patty and PJ. There's a third person. <laughs> and she goes, thank you, Lord. You see, we hear God all of the time. We usually just aren't paying enough attention to recognize that it's actually Him. And yet, He's always working on you, even if you don't know He's doing it. So we hear God in our thoughts, and we hear God in our intuition. You are always hearing God. If you're having a hard time hearing God, go take a shower. God lives in my shower. <laughs> That sounds funny. People used to tell me, I need a word from God. I can't get a word from God. I said, go take a shower. And they're like, that makes no sense. I said, it does if you understand your brain. Our brain is part of our flesh. Our brain is programmed to work a certain way. And it's always based on what has come before. So when we are looking for an answer, we go into the filing cabinet of our mind to find the answer. And the answer is not there. It's in here. It's in our spirit. But if we give our brain something else to do, <laughs> if you want to hear God, mow the lawn. If you want to hear God, vacuum the living room floor. Why? Because it gives your brain something else to do. And while your brain is busy taking care of something physical, your spirit man starts to hear, starts to hear. 
the thoughts will start coming. God is a spontaneous God, and he speaks spontaneously. That's one of the reasons we recognize that it's him, because we wouldn't think those thoughts. <laughs> a lot of times when a thought comes, you're like, well, I know that's not me, because I would never want to do that. <laughs> I would never want to go there. I would never want to say that. God, we hear him. He's always working on us. So fear-based thoughts. Now, see, everybody can hear Satan just fine. <laughs> Had you noticed that? Right, because we recognize it by the character of the thought. We recognize that it doesn't come from us. There have been times when I've had a thought, I go, why in the world? That's horrible. And my first logical thought is, how could I think such a terrible thing? And God's like, that ain't you. <laughs> that ain't you. Terrible thoughts don't come from you. Sinful thoughts don't come from you. The real you is a spirit that's one with God. Those are the thoughts that belong to you, the God thoughts. So it's really easy to spot Satan. He's a big liar. Fear-based thoughts are never, never, never. Let me say that again. Never, never, never. Never, 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 never from God. I had a friend say one day, but doesn't God use fear to keep you safe? No. He gives you wisdom to keep you safe. Fear just torments you. Never, 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 never from God. If you're having thoughts that make you afraid, they are lies from the enemy. See, he tricks us into thinking they're actually our thoughts. He tells us, take ownership of that. I'm so afraid. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Look inside in your spirit. That's the real you. The only thing that's upset is your brain. Your brain is giving you thoughts and you're responding emotionally to those thoughts. It's all from outside in. So when we have those kinds of thoughts, those thoughts never produce faith. They only produce fear. It's not from God. We can choose to say, no, that's not from God and that's not me and I'm not listening and we choose to think on what Jesus says is true. If we're not listening and recognizing what is and is not of God, we have either forgotten who we are, which happens all the time, <laughs> or we haven't realized who we are and what we are. We have to know what kind of picture we have of ourselves. Is it the picture of Jesus, or is it a picture of a failure? Somebody who never quite walks the walk or walks the chalk the way I think I should. You see, because you do have a picture and that picture gets worked out into your life. That's why we need good pictures. So James is telling us that we can and should command and lead our thoughts to be joy-filled, particularly when we fall into divers' temptations. I have it for you there in the King James again. My brethren, count it all joy. So we know what count means. It means to take authority and to cause our thoughts, to lead our thoughts to the place of joy, which is a place of faith. When ye fall into. The Strong's Concordance says this. We call it three words. In the Greek, it's only one. And it's the word peripipto. It means to fall into something that is all round that is translated to light among or upon, you know, to land upon, to be surrounded with, or to fall among or into. I like this definition because I always thought of this verse in terms of giving into an internal temptation. Those things that come from our flesh, like ice cream. <laughs> ice cream talks to me. <laughs> and I always thought that was what it was, but it isn't. Really, this verse specifically says that these are particular temptations that originate on the outside, not the inside. James gets around to the inside ones later on, but we're not going to get to that today. But these temptations are specifically something that surrounds us. And really, these temptations are simply outward circumstances that contradict what God says is true. One of the root words contained in this word, peripipto, paints the picture of falling from a high place where one flies down to a lower place, which causes us to stop flying. 
the high place of faith. You see, when it says fall into, you got to be somewhere in order to fall. <laughs> so what this picture paints is like a butterfly or like an eagle, which be masculine. Get your picture here. <laughs> we live in a high place. And what these temptations are is they surround us. Think of the media. Think of Facebook. Think of all of the things that are going on, the newspapers. All of this negativity surrounds us. And we can either stay up here in the high place of faith, or we can come down and visit <laughs> and get stuck. Because that's exactly what it's meant to do, is to suck you in and to keep you down. That's what that word means, peripiptal. So when you fall into, it means you've decided to leave your high place and come down to a low place. You get into trouble. <laughs> the high place is always the place of faith. And we'll see that in the next verse, which we're not going to get to today. <laughs> the high place is where we believe and where we are fully persuaded by what God says, particularly about who and what we are in Christ. And the low place is the place where we believe and are persuaded by the physical senses. What we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we understand. It's all flesh. The Apostle Paul tells us about this high place over in Ephesians 2. We're going to begin with verse 2. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here because this verse used to scare the bejeebies out of me. <laughs> I don't like people, Christians, to have the bejeebies scared out of them. <laughs> the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Ever been disobedient? Of course you have. <laughs> so it sounds like Christians take on this identity that I'm a child of disobedience. You're not. Let's look at what this word disobedience means. Children of disobedience does not refer to naughty Christians. Mark kind of stole my thunder on this with the offering. <laughs> this refers to unbelievers, not Christians who are naughty. <laughs> the word disobedience is the Greek word apatheia, and it means disbelief. Not just unbelief, but disbelief obstinate, rebellious unbelief. It's like the difference between an agnostic and an atheist. An agnostic says, there might be a God. The atheist says, no way, Jose, not listening. See, the atheist is the one who is a child of disobedience. They refuse to believe. Now, when translators look at a word like this, because you're like, well, why did they translate it this way? Because translators have a point of view, <laughs> and we get to see it. <laughs> but they have to decide when they translate a word, because it can be appropriate to translate it disobedience. But it would be more appropriate to translate it unbelief or disbelief. In the Greek, a word has cause and effect. It has root and fruit. <laughs> Most translators choose the quote-unquote fruit or result that this word represents. And that's what they did in this situation. The word of disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. You have a root and you have a fruit. When we sin, where does it come from? Unbelief. We act on what we believe, always. We act on what we believe. So if I don't believe that God will take care of me, and I think I have to go and steal, that sin came out of that unbelief. That's what they did with this word. The root word means disbelief, obstinate and rebellious. That always works its way out in sin. Disobedience leads people to believe that their true problem is what they do. Got a behavior you'd like to change? <laughs> when in reality their true problem is what they believe or in the case of salvation what they refuse to believe the real problem is the root which is unbelief which is basically believing something that is contrary to what God says is true so unbelievers have a believing problem <laughs> which reveals itself in a behaving problem <laughs> but truthfully, sometimes Christians have behaving problems for the same reason. They have a believing problem. They don't know who they are, 
and they don't know their true identity and the true identity of their Father and their Savior. Again, starting with verse 2. We're in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's all the rioting we see. That is what's behind and pushing all of this. It is the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, lying to people that this is how we change our world. Verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation, which means our lifestyle, in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And that would really be better to say brain. <laughs> and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's who we used to be. That's not who we are. We used to operate according to the course of this world, according to what the media says, according to what the world says is right and not right. We let our flesh and our brain be our boss, but not anymore. Something has happened to us, praise God, <laughs> and we are not who we used to be. We are not even what we used to be. Verse 4, but God. Love that. See, all the other stuff can go away, but God, who is rich in mercy for his Great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, even when we were a mess, he loved us with an everlasting love. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. For grace ye are saved. I love this that the Apostle Paul puts this little parenthesis. <laughs> it's like he can't wait to say it. <laughs> I have a train of thought, but I got to go ahead and say this. By grace, you are saved. You are sozoed. You are saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and prospered through the new creation identity of Christ in us and through us. We already are sozoed. Some translations say, by grace, ye have been saved. Others say, you are in the process of being saved. Which one is right? Both of them. <laughs> because in our spirit, it is a finished work. But to get what's in us out, we got to let God work on us. God change our mind. We got to respond when we hear his voice. Because we are already sozoed. Saved, healed, delivered, protected. Protected. He is my shield and my very great reward. I am protected and I am prospered through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together. Here's our high place. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We live in a new kingdom of God's love in our spirit. God picked us up. Well, first of all, he killed us. I love that part. For years, I didn't know I was dead. <laughs> I thought I was that old person trying to become a new person. That's just ridiculous. It's exhausting. It's not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God killed us off and he started over. And when he started over, he made us brand new and he put us in the high place, which is where? Above everything. Where do we usually see ourselves? <laughs> in the low place. Gosh, Lord, nothing ever works for me. <laughs> I'll never get over this. I'll never change. None of that is from God. That's us letting ourselves fall from the high place of who we are and who Jesus is into the low place of what we used to be. Our spirit man always, always, always abides in the high place, in the heavenly place, in the place of faith the place where we know that we are seated with Christ and in Christ and we are with him co-ruling. What if we took that position? I am right now at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus and with Christ Jesus and we get to talk to the earth. We get to speak to the riots. We get to dispense angels. Angels go. Go get those clouds and bring some rain to California. Angels go. You see, we don't really believe that. <laughs> so what do we do? God, please send rain. We act like we have no responsibility. God has given the world to man. He gave us the keys and said, please don't wreck it. <laughs> Drive good. <laughs> Rule good. But that's where we sit. That's where we actually sit. But we believe we're down here in the dirt. As we sit in Christ at the right hand of the Father, we are far above all, all 
principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Our spirit man always has faith. Our spirit man always has faith. We are not short on faith because we are not short on Jesus. <laughs> we have all of Jesus, all of the Father, and all of the Holy Spirit. We are not short on the power and presence of God. If we are not short on the power and presence of God, then we are not short on faith. Faith comes from Jesus. So you're not lacking faith, even if you feel like you are. Years ago when I was trying to get healed, <laughs> I know I'm healed. When, Jesus, when? <laughs> I know I'm healed. When, Jesus, when? If I'm over here going when and whining, do I really believe? <laughs> that I already got it. <laughs> because people who have it and know they have it aren't whining and crying. <laughs> They're rejoicing and praising God that this is the greater reality and this is what's true and I'm not having anything less than that. So we are not short on faith. Our spirit man is always flying high above the natural realm with Jesus. But our brain and our emotions tend to drag us back down to the lower place of the flesh because they believe, our brain and our emotions believe what the natural realm tells us. That it is actually what is actually, quote unquote, actually true. The same verse again, the next word. <laughs> My brethren, count it all joy when you fall from the high place into the low place into diverse temptations. Diverse just means various and sundry. <laughs> way too many different ways, <laughs> various and sundry temptations. Now the Strong's Concordance says the word that is translated as temptations is periasmos. It comes from a root word which means putting to proof by experiment of good or the experience of evil. It can be translated solicitation, discipline, or provocation. By implication it means adversity and it is then translated temptation or to try to have a trial. What this means is that the hard places, and yes, sometimes even the good places, test what's on the inside of us. It's kind of like being a soggy sponge full of the Holy Spirit and faith, <laughs> and then getting squeezed. You see, sometimes good things push us. It pressures us to say, what do I actually believe? I used to have a problem. If something good happened to me, I was looking around for the other shoe to fall. <laughs> well, this good thing happened. Be careful, there must be a bad thing coming. <laughs> That's a test. Do I believe God is good and always good? Or do I believe that now that God's done something good for me, he's going to lift his hand of protection and let Satan get me? <laughs> so even good things can pressure us, that a test, what's inside? <laughs> That's what it means, is that these natural things push on us to ask us, what do we believe? The pressure from the outside will always release what's on the inside. Hard places can provoke us to operate in faith, or they can steal our attention and cause us to fall from the high place of faith into the low place of unbelief. So these tests don't prove whether or not you have faith. <laughs> what they prove is what dimension you're drawing from. We always have faith because we always have Jesus. Okay. So it's not a test to prove you have something or don't have something. It proves where your attention is, what realm are you operating from? Are we operating from the high place where we sit in heavenly places above everything? Or are we operating from the, oh, woe is me, God, why don't you do something place? <laughs> we can go from trusting God one minute to trusting our flesh or the natural realm the next. That was me. I believe I receive. I believe I am healed. When God win. <laughs> we do that. We vacillate. And of course, James gets into that later about receiving from God. One of the root words for this word temptation is the Greek word paran. This word paran is a derivative of another word pyro, which means to pierce, which means to go through. 
to go across, to go beyond, to go farther, to go to the other side, or to go over. I like the picture that this paints because it's in, in reference to temptations and trials because in every hard place we have to ask ourselves, am I going to go through this storm to the other side? Or am I going to cast away my confidence? When we're talking about going to the other side, we automatically have to go over to the story about Jesus and getting to the other side. Because this is the picture that this word temptations is trying to paint for us. In the fourth chapter of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, after a long day of ministry, that they're all going to the other side of the lake. So they all get in a boat, and people get into other boats, and then Jesus proceeds to fall asleep while they're all in the boat traveling to the other side. And then unexpectedly, <laughs> how on earth did this get started? <laughs> Seemingly out of nowhere, there's a storm, there's a trial, there's a direct contradiction to what Jesus said. What did Jesus tell them? We're going to the other side. What does the storm say? Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> right then, we have a temptation. When the storm comes, we have a temptation to believe what the natural realm is speaking or to believe what Jesus said. We do get to choose. Now, the disciples didn't go looking for a storm. The storm came looking for them. You would think it was sent on purpose. <laughs> it came knocking on their door, and then it surrounded them in an effort to overtake them. That's what a temptation wants to do overtake you. So what did they do? They freaked out. <laughs> Don't you love that? I love that the disciples are really real. <laughs> and yes, they act like human beings. They freaked out just like we do sometimes. And there they were in the dark at the end of the day. And then there's rain and wind and waves. And they're in a boat that's being tossed about and filled with water. That's a problem. Too much water is a problem when it's in the boat. So they probably tried to fix their problem. Now, it doesn't tell us that. But since they're human and we're human, we can kind of figure out they tried to fix their own problem. Ever do that? No. <laughs> they tried to fix their own problem in their own strength and wisdom. Although it doesn't say that they did, but I think they did. The truth is, they were probably bailing water as fast as they could <laughs> and watching Jesus and being irritated that he's not doing anything. <laughs> but too much water in the boat wasn't actually their problem. The source of too much water was the problem. <laughs> they didn't know how to turn off the spigot. <laughs> but they were actually trying to deal with the fruit of the problem. Problem was the storm and it created an issue and they were trying to deal with the issue instead of the root of the problem, which was the storm itself. The disciples didn't know that they could speak to the storm. They had never seen that done. Not too long ago, we were going home from Grace Spiration and it was raining, right? And it's dark. I don't like rain in the dark. <laughs> I can't see when there's rain in the dark. And we didn't say anything to each other, you know. All of a sudden, you know, this is irritating. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, knock it off. Cease and desist. And then we just went back to talking. And then about a minute or two, stopped. Mark's like, thanks. <laughs> he was the one driving. <laughs> they had never seen somebody do that. So speaking to the storm was not something they thought they could do. You see, the problem with the disciples is they weren't born again and spirit-filled. <laughs> so they're not really a good representation of who we are. They are in their humanity, but not in as far as position. They didn't have what we have. They couldn't use what we can use. They didn't have Jesus on the inside. They just had Jesus on the outside, and I'm pretty sure they were annoyed with him. <laughs> so the storm just continued to speak scary things to them which directly contradicted what Jesus had said to them, which was, we're going to the other side. The storm must have said things like, you're going to die. Don't you love that one? <laughs> Jesus didn't protect you from the storm. He must not love you. He doesn't care if you perish. 
You can't trust him to take care of you. He let a storm come. Satan's lies are still the same ones he uses today. They haven't changed. They accuse God of being bad <laughs> or not caring or not protective, which is not the case. In this world, you will have tribulation. There is a real power called the power of the prince of the air. He is real and he doesn't like us. <laughs> so if he can find a way to attack us, he will. And it's because he knows if we believe his lies, we will fall from the high place of faith down into the low place of natural unbelief. Now, fortunately, the disciples quit trying to handle the situation in their own strength and called upon Jesus. Now, it's not like they suddenly had great faith. And let's face it, they're bailing water. They're not working on their faith. <laughs> but they called on Jesus. They knew from whence their help came. They knew Jesus was a miracle worker. He is the way maker. He is the one who is constantly working. They knew where to go when they came to the end of themselves. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> they knew that God was with Jesus, even if they didn't understand at the time that Jesus was, in fact, God wrapped in humanity. The way the disciples responded to the storm was directly related to what they believed about storms. They believed that the storms were more powerful than they were and that they were at the mercy of the storm. So many believers believe the same thing. I can't do anything about this sickness. I can't do anything about this poverty. I can't do anything about the storm. Storms are bigger than me. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are in our flesh, but not in our spirit. They're not bigger than us when we are in our high place, seated in Christ Jesus and recognizing who and what we have and what we are. Believers often fall into the same kind of thinking regarding storms that show up in our lives. We believe that the storms are bigger and more powerful instead of realizing that the same Jesus with the same authority lives inside of us right now, and that he can and will speak and release the same power through our mouth. We have to decide that we are going to the other side. We have to decide that we are going through the storm safely and victoriously by faith. The storm doesn't get to steal our attention or my attention. It doesn't get to tell me who's the boss other than Jesus. The storm will steal your attention and cause you to fall into unbelief if we let it. The disciples finally got to the point in the storm where they realized that what they were doing just wasn't working. <laughs> Have you got to that point somewhere in your life? This isn't working, Jesus. <laughs> if what we're doing isn't working, then we're not working with Jesus. So it's time to look to Jesus. And so they do. In Mark chapter 4, they wake Jesus up. Verses 39 40, it says this. And he, Jesus, arose and rebuked the storm. Forbid it. That's what it means. I forbid it. Knock it off. And said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Jesus basically told the storm to stop talking and be silent. I love this. When I first saw this years ago, I thought, that cracks me up. Because Jesus didn't say, peace, be still. What he actually said was, knock it off. You shut up, sit down, and be quiet. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> the way I used to talk to my kids when they were fighting, stop it right now, knock it off. Power and authority. He used his power and authority. We think Jesus is all calm and peace, peace. No, he's irritated. This storm is scaring his disciples. He doesn't want them afraid. But he's not going to miss an opportunity to teach them something, too. <laughs> so Jesus tells the storm, shut up. Stop talking and be still. And to be still means to be involuntarily still. In other words, you don't get to choose if you're going to be still or not. <laughs> like with Mike, you sit there or you will be sorry. <laughs> this is how Jesus was talking to the storm. Jesus wasn't happy about the storm. 
Neither God the Father nor Jesus the Son created the storm. Christianity 101, God good, devil bad. <laughs> A lot of the church gets that mixed up. If the Father had created the storm, then what business did Jesus have thwarting it? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. They work in concert. That doesn't make sense to think that Jesus or the Father sent the storm to teach them something. No, Jesus will not miss an opportunity to teach you something, but he didn't send the storm. We need to know that God the Father and Jesus our Savior are not the ones creating scary physical storms in this world. God is not punishing California with wildfires. These are natural, low things, natural things used against humanity to instill fear. Satan wants us to keep our eyes on the storm for this very reason, so that we'll take our eyes off of the truth of where we actually sit and soar and cause us to come down to the low place of the flesh and the natural realm. When Jesus stilled the storm on the outside of the disciples, he also stilled or quieted the storm on the inside of the disciples by revealing more of his true identity to them as the Son of God, who has all power and authority. So did they really have no faith? <laughs> well, <laughs> not when they woke Jesus up. <laughs> they did know from where their help comes from. But were they persuaded by the power and goodness of God when Jesus stilled the storm? Yes, I think they were. I think they went, wow, wow. <laughs> and it's the same for us today. The more we know Jesus and what he's done for us, the easier it is for us to trust him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. In other words, he's the one that persuades our heart of the truth. He watches over our heart and sustains it. He keeps our heart believing. I love this. <laughs> Jesus keeps me believing. It's not all about how hard I work. <laughs> it's about his faithfulness. He keeps me believing until he can convince my heart of the truth. And in being convinced, every fear and doubt is vanquished. That's his work to lead us into all truth. It's his work to sustain us until what we are in our spirit can be worked out into our soul. This very same story is told in Luke chapter 8. But I like the last verse of Luke's version better. And it says this, Luke 8, 25. And he, Jesus, said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying to one another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So where was their faith? The same place their eyes were. Whatever they looked at is how their heart was persuaded. When their eyes were on the storm, the storm persuaded their hearts to fear. But when their eyes were on Jesus, then Jesus persuaded their hearts to trust in him and his word. Again, the disciples didn't have what we have. They were at that time unregenerated men. They were not born again. They did not have a new spirit, a new heart, or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What we have today is so much better than what they had. We have the very faith of Jesus living on the inside. Now, this is so super important because you know what most Christians do when they need to get something from God, whether it's healing or provision? We try to believe hard. <laughs> we believe in God. I'm believing. No, <laughs> that's flesh. Because I'm believing what the flesh says. I'm believing what the world says. I'm believing what the natural realm. Trying hard to believe doesn't work. <laughs> it's a work of self-effort. What did they do? They looked unto Jesus, and they let Jesus persuade them. That's what we do. When we know we already have all the faith we need. Faith is never our problem. What's our problem? Unbelief. <laughs> the unbelief comes from the natural realm. I was thinking about this this morning, about how this works, is I used to have a refrigerator magnet that said, male refrigerator blindness strikes again. 
Refrigerator blindness. It's a male trait. <laughs> it means when they look in the refrigerator, they cannot see what's right in front of them. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but all the males in my house have male <laughs> refrigerator blindness. It's not in here. You walk over there, you go, it's right here. <laughs> that was not there a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Christians, for the most part, do the same thing. We look inside and say, it's not there. I can't feel it. <laughs> I must not have any faith because I can't feel it. It's there. <laughs> but something happens. At my house, I actually tricked the men in my house and kept them from eating all the grapes. I used to buy grapes for Mark's lunch. And the boys would come over and they would eat all the grapes. <laughs> so I thought, how am I going to stop this excessive grape eating? <laughs> and God said, refrigerator blindness. That's right. If I cover them, they'll never know they're there. <laughs> <laughs> I put a dish rag over the grapes. They couldn't find them. <laughs> Male refrigerator blindness. <laughs> or, and then I would put stuff in front of it. That way they really couldn't find it. You see, that's what happens to us. Stuff gets put in front of what we know is true. The flesh, the natural realm, stands in front of us and says, you can't see anything. <laughs> And we can't in the flesh, but in our spirit, looking on to Jesus. This is one of the most important things I learned from Andrew Womack, that I don't have to make faith. As a word of faith girl, I am all about word of faith. You need to know about word of faith, what that means. It means the word, our faith, is set on what God has said. Okay? But I'm not building my faith. I'm getting rid of the unbelief. That's the only difference between the word of faith and what we teach, is that you're not building your faith so that you get strong. Get your eyes off yourself. You see, that's what we do. Do I have, a, I used to pray this, Lord, do I have enough faith to get healed today? <laughs> I never got an answer. I always had enough faith to get healed. My problem wasn't what was in my spirit. My problem was what was in the refrigerator in my way. <laughs> I couldn't see what I already had. I had to move stuff, get rid of the outward, because what it does, it, it weighs on us, the negativity, the persecution, the flesh. But you have the faith that says, yes, I do. I already have it. It's mine. The blood of Jesus gave it to me. So what do we do? We work. It looks the same as working to build faith. But once you know, look, this is not about building my faith. I don't have to keep looking to me. The last thing you want to do is to look to yourself to see if you have faith. <laughs> because you can't create faith. You can't make it. You can't build it. You've already been given it. Because faith knows who we are and where we sit and what's really true. And in our spirit, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And it is this world that tells us something else. It is our physical bodies that tell us something else. So what do we do? Remove the washcloth so we can see the grapes, <laughs> that they're really there. This is why it is so important to let Jesus wash away your unbelief, which is the root of our problem with the truth of his finished work on the cross and with the, the heart-persuading power of the Holy Spirit. You can't even persuade your own heart. That's self-effort. I've known Christians for years who go over the word and go over the word and go over the word, but they never seem to get anywhere. And you say, how is that possible? Because they think they're building their faith. Instead of understanding, I'm renewing my mind, I'm taking away the, the dish rag so that I can see what I really am. Because we always live and act out of who we really believe we are. I have a Hebrews 12.2. I have it in two versions, the King James and the Passion Translation. 12.2 says this. Looking unto Jesus. The author, I mean, he begins our faith, and the finisher, he provides everything you need. He has provided our faith, and he sustains our faith. It is his work in our spirit. Who for the joy set before him, counted all joy, endured the cross. We can endure any situation, anything in the flesh. We can endure because we have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ to get us through. He endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love the way the Passion Translation says it. We look away from the natural realm. That's where the unbelief comes from. We look away from what the natural realm says, and we fasten our gaze onto Jesus, who birthed faith within us, and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. It means we get everything that we want <laughs> that he gave us. His example is this. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has perfect faith and perfect confidence in his own blood and in his own sacrifice. He is perfectly persuaded that the cross did what he says it did. It put an end to the power of sin and death on the inside of us. We have Jesus and his perfect faith in our spirit man. What Jesus does is to persuade our heart that the place where we believe of what we already know in our spirit, what we already have in our spirit. So Jesus brings what we are in our spirit out into our soul. And we can trust him to do just that. We can trust him to persuade our brain and our emotions of what is already true about us and about him. So Jesus can lead and command our thoughts into all joy. We can do exactly like he did for the joy. I have received what he says I've received. That is more real, and that gives us joy. It goes on to talk about perseverance in, in James. In other words, I keep my eyes in the high place. I keep my eyes on Jesus and who he has made me to be. Because like Jesus, we know the end from the beginning. If we believe we have it, it's going to show up. Jesus said so. We know that we have what Jesus says we have and that we can do what Jesus says we can do. Yes, we can speak to storms. Yes, we have a responsibility to speak to our natural realm and then to participate as he calls us to participate. Jesus says that we have his faith and that he's the one that brings his faith to work in our life. Through the word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus takes what resides in our spirit and brings it out into our soul where our hearts are fully persuaded. So when things around us try to provoke us, that's what they do, they try to provoke us to think like the world, to believe what the world says is true and real and, what, and the future, Ugh, don't listen to them. But we can count it all joy. We can lead and command our thoughts to bow to the truth of our new identity and to the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can live from the high place of faith not through our own strength, but through the strength of Christ himself within us. We just keep looking unto Jesus. And it's Jesus who persuades our heart of what's already true about us and about himself. It's his faith at work in us. And when we know that he's the one helping our believer, I love this, that believer gets all clogged up <laughs> with the things in this world and fear and doubt and unbelief. And he's the one that says, I am the author and the finisher, the sustainer. He sustains our faith. It's his work in us. He helps us to believe the right things. He helps us to believe that it's not a work of our own hands, but simply a cooperation with him. When we do that, then the things that test and provoke our faith with contradicting arguments we can look at them and we can count it all joy by faith. Faith in who he is, faith in who he is in us, faith in what he says he's already done. Amen? Father God, I thank you for your word and for your truth. I so cherish this word. I cherish the truth that my faith is not a work of my own hands. I can't make faith, I can't build faith, but I can yield to faith. I can yield to the power of the Holy Spirit taking away the lies that cause unbelief. I can yield to the truth of your word that I see in your word and that you bring to life in me. I thank you, Father God, that we hear you. Hearing you brings trust. Hearing you is everything we need. Looking unto Jesus is all we need. 
we look away from this world and we look to the high place of the truth of who we are and what we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you help us when we're tempted, when this world says you're going to die, when this world says the world's going to hell in the handbasket, we can stand up and say, no, I get to choose what I believe. I get to lead my thoughts into all joy. I get to lead myself by the word of God and through the presence of the Holy Spirit into the place of faith. Yes, Lord, we do fall. We fall from what we know is true in you down to what we feel, down into what we see, down to the unbelief of this world. But thank you, Lord, you don't leave us there. You're our sustainer. You pick us up again. You brush us off again and say, you are a child of the living God and you have power and authority and you don't have to live like this. Choose to look to Jesus. When we look to you, we have everything we need. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.